Did you know the Tribeca Festival showcases more than just film and TV? Tribeca's audio storytelling program, sponsored by Audible, is happening June 9th to June 13th in NYC. It includes premieres of new indie podcasts, plus exclusive live tapings of popular podcasts like Slow Burn, Criminal with special guest Melissa McCarthy, and Vibe Check with special guest Lena Waithe. Don't miss it. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. Get ready to laugh out loud at the Tribeca Festival, June 5th to June 16th in NYC. Experience hilarious talks, comedy specials, and feel-good films with your fan-favorite comedians like Hannah Einbinder, Judd Apatow, Neil Patrick Harris, Tig Notaro, and more. You have to be there. Get your tickets now at TribecaFilm.com. It's almost dangerous to look at the present moment and and see it as coming out of nowhere and so un-American when it's rooted in a lot of things that are American. And the only way out of it, I think, is to grapple with those things, not to deny them. Hello, welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. My guest today is Joanne Freeman, a historian at Yale who is the author of a remarkable new book called Field of Blood. What do you think Field of Blood is about? Just like if you had to guess, probably wouldn't expect it to be about the floor of the U.S. Congress. But but she's written this amazing book um, built on, on primary documentation of that period, which is a pre-Civil War period, about the astonishing amount of violence that characterized the early U.S. Congress, how often... Uh, members of Congress were beating the hell out of each other, getting into duels, occasionally killing each other. How much violent intimidation was part of the way the organization worked? And I, I think it's a really important book. One reason it's an important book is to contextualize the moment we're in. All the complaints we have about today's Congress, about the ways in which it is betraying the great traditions of the institution. And we tend to, I think, take more seriously the glittering words that survive in history about American politics than we take some of the seedier realities that actually characterized it throughout history. So this is on one level a good corrective. But on another level, and, and we get into this in the conversation, it's a really interesting exploration of what do you do when violence is being protected by violence? When a tremendous kind of harm and and in some ways like a, a disorder is being protected by the threat of harm and disorder, how does that work on people who consider themselves committed to, to unity and civility and understanding? How how is that leveraged and deployed by people comfortable with that kind of uh, harm and disunion to protect what they're doing? Um, I, I think some of the moral questions and questions of politics this raises are a lot more complex than they appear at first glance. It isn't as easy as violence is always bad. Sometimes you have to ask, how is that instinctive reaction that we all have used to keep terrible things in this world protected from scrutiny, much less reform? I think this is a pretty interesting conversation that goes to places that we don't always explore, but we probably need to. That isn't to say that I know what the answer to them is, but but I do think they need to be spoken about. Um, as always, you can email me, guest suggestions, feedback at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here's Joanne Freeman. Joanne Freeman, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So when people say that Congress today is partisan and polarized and, and it's an embarrassment to the institution's noble history, what do you what do you hear? <laughs> I hear, please give me a soundbite. <laughs> That's what I hear. Um, but I also hear um, 
the historian brain immediately awakens with a request like that because, of course, everyone always exists in the present and wants the present to be the est, you know, the, the worst, the the best, the something est. And in the long view of history, of course, nothing is ever that simple. So as far as I'm concerned, I do a lot of work on political violence and generally speaking, and most recently violence in Congress. So I can say, yeah, things have been different bad in the past, but certainly bad in the past. I, I love that comment you just made that we always want the present to be the est, that, that we always want to be living through a moment in history that's really one of the important moments in the history book. How do you know if you are? <laughs> It fe- doesn't this feel kind of esty? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, right. It, it, it does feel kind of esty, as a matter of fact. Um, and, I, you know, I think that's where the est does us a disservice. There are, are lots of flavors of bad moments in historical time and in American history. Some of the things that we're going through now, we've gone through versions of before. Some of the things we're going through now, we haven't. And so I could sit here and I could name for you three or four other moments in American history that were extremely polarized and nasty with Americans, each labeling other groups of Americans un-American and conspiracy theories and all kinds of things that we're seeing now. But none... No two of those moments play out precisely the same way. So I'm I'm always kind of torn as a historian. On the one hand, I do want to say this this what we're experiencing now, number one, isn't a unique moment. And number two, it didn't come out of nowhere. But on the other hand, I do want people to be aware of the fact that, that it is kind of in some ways an est moment. And there are some things playing out here that we don't know how they're gonna play out. You know, so so we need to be cautious as well as aware of the past. Out of curiosity, did you see Ron Chernow's White House Correspondents' Dinner speech? I did not. I, I, <laughs> I'm going to sound like one of my students. I read the reviews. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why I was interested in, because I, I, I see there's been at least some pushback from historians who I think felt it was too much of a, uh, an esty speech, that it didn't, right. it, didn't, it didn't ground the moment enough in its historical predecessors for their taste. Well, right. I mean, so literally that's all I got was a a variety of different people saying that having not seen the speech or read it, I can't comment on it. But what I can say is certainly it's almost dangerous to look at the present moment and and see it as coming out of nowhere and so un-American when it's rooted in a lot of things that are American. And the only way out of it, I think, is to grapple with those things, not to deny them. Well, let's do some of the grappling then. Tell me if it grapple. <laughs> how did this book come about? How did you decide to write a book about physical violence on the floor of the U.S. Congress? Well, um, it 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 kind of leapt out at me when I was trying to decide what I wanted to write about. Honestly, um, I my first book was about political combat in the first ten years of the government, sort of how it felt to be a national politician, um, and I wrote about dueling and I wrote about gossip attacks and newspaper attacks. And I knew that for this next book, I wanted to take it further. I wanted to go a little bit deeper and understand really more about the violence and how it played out longer term. But I I didn't really know how I was going to do that. And the one thing that I knew looking ahead in time from the period I'd just written about was that in 1838, one congressman killed another congressman in a duel. So I thought, okay, well, I don't know what I'm going to find, but I do know that that was a pretty extreme moment of violence. So why don't I jump in to evidence in 1838 and see what I see? And as luck would have it, I started reading the private letters of a congressman from the same state as the congressman who was killed. 
And as also as luck would have it, he wrote almost every day to his wife. And as I was reading his letters, I began noticing either moments of near violence or violence that um, every time I saw one, it sort of surprised me. You know, someone rolling up their sleeves to throw a punch, someone actually punching someone. I, I, and I couldn't initially... I actually, for a, a flash of a second, thought, is he like, is this a warped way of entertaining his wife? Like, you'll never guess what happened today in the house. But I began to write these down, these instances down, and there was so much of it, and I was so surprised by it that I went looking for it. And lo and behold, um, over time, and largely starting with private letters and diaries and then moving into things like the congressional record and newspapers, I found so much violence or near violence or threats or intimidation that I knew that that was the story that I had to figure out. So I want to start a little bit behind Congress in what a culture of violence and duels and, and fighting is about. Uh, uh, let me tell you a story that I was just thinking about while you were talking. So I got my start in journalism as a blogger. And when I was a blogger, and this was, you know, probably a couple years after I started, I criticized something Michelle Malkin, who's a right-wing pundit, wrote about healthcare. And in response, um, some Michelle Malkin fan who had a blog challenged me to a charity boxing match, like wrote this <laughs> angry piece challenging me to box. He's like, I may just be an old retired veteran, but I can still beat the shit out of you. And I remember just like laughing endlessly about this, like what – what would it prove? Like, what what right. did it have to do with anything about whether or not Michelle or I was right about this, whatever this healthcare <laughs> dispute was? Like, if if, right. if we had a bot, like, it seemed so irrelevant to me. And I think about that often, you know, reading your book and, and thinking about this culture that, you know, somebody calls somebody else a liar and then there's a duel or there's a beatdown. And what did it prove? So help me as somebody kind of ensconced in, you know, wimpy, modern <laughs> culture. What, what, is, what is this kind of violence? What does it mean in a culture like that? Why, why do people who are intelligent and in many other ways humane and see themselves as civilized, why did they understand it to be an important and reasonable part of their world? Part of the answer to that has to do with the fact that, um, and this is going to sound just as counterintuitive as everything else about dueling or this, this violence, um, it's not about killing or doing harm. It's, it's actually all about reputation and honor. Um, in, in the case of your blogger opponent, I suppose he felt he was redeeming the honor of the person who you seemingly had, had slandered in some way. But more than that, in the period that I write about, all of this behavior. So, for example, um, even if you go back in time to something like the Burr-Hamilton duel, which now most people know about in the more distant past 20, 30 years ago, people didn't. Um, well, there was, that, that, what, there was that Got Milk commercial. Yes. <laughs> That's how I do first you, learned about it. Do you know how many people sent me copies of that Got Milk commercial <laughs> when it came on? <laughs> so, yeah, they everyone sort of pegged me immediately for that person. But um, – uh, dueling was not about, and this will seemingly make no sense, it was not about killing. So when someone went out to fight a duel or when Burr went out to fight with Hamilton or when any of the people in the, the book I just wrote, The Field of Blood, goes out to fight, they're not aiming to kill someone. They're aiming to, on the one hand, prove that they themselves are brave enough and honorable enough to be willing to die for their name and to redeem whatever they feel needs to be redeemed and whatever insult has passed back. And forth. So on the one hand, you're right. It doesn't really resolve anything. If if you insult me and we go out on a field and exchange gunfire, it, even at the time, people could say, really? <laughs> like, 
what does that accomplish? On the other hand, there's no more powerful way, or certainly there didn't seem to be at that point in time, to prove that you were truly a person who would die for your honor, your reputation, your name. Um, you literally were proving yourself willing to die for that. And in some way or another, it was proof of leadership. So that's kind of what dueling was about. And some of the other violence that I write about, you know, which often has to do with intimidation or threats, that was just a variant on the same theme. So um, if you were a northerner and you said something nasty about slavery and a southerner stood up in Congress and called you a name, you essentially would feel humiliated before the eyes of the nation in one way or another. And that fear of humiliation and your reputation being damaged kept some Northerners from piping up. So it, it still was reputation, just a slightly different version of it. So I'm going to play a little more naive here than I am. Um, because thinking <laughs> about this, I, I recognize, of course, that when I'm angry, um, when I was a kid, or even now, you know, I get cut off in traffic or, or somebody insults me in a way I feel is really unfair. Uh, it's not that I don't have any physical response, right? There, there's something very deep in, in humans and like look at kids who when insulted, attacked, angered, you want to beat the hell out of the other person. So – but I am interested in the way that people attach higher motives to that. So so as I kind of play dumb about why you might do this, you know, I, I'm doing to draw something out. But when you say that, it, what, what it makes me wonder is about the culture of life that operates in a society like that. So I think about the, the Burr-Hamilton duel or, or any of these duels, um, or I think about myself, right? I'm called terrible names on the internet all the time. People say things about me that are horrible. I'm so horrible. sorry. It's okay. It's the life I've chosen. And, you know, and I imagine, okay, I can imagine a world in which I want to prove that I'm so committed to the ideals that I hold that I'd be willing to meet somebody on the field of combat for that. And then I think about the other side of it. You know, what if what if you shot because you were there to prove that you would be willing to die for your deals and what you did was kill the other person? Now, you've deprived children of a father, a wife of a husband, friends of a friend, a mother of a son. Um, I mean, it would end my life, right? Like, I can't imagine recovering from that as a as a person. So what is happening in this culture where some of the duels you record in the book, they come out of almost nothing? I mean, one of the ones you, you discuss in great detail is it's like the people involved in the duel aren't even the right people, or at least one of them isn't even the right person. And yet he kills the other guy. I, I just, I don't understand how, what it is in the culture and the psyche that lets you move on from that, that lets that seem not just justified, but just like as an event in your life, as an event where something was proven. You're absolutely right. And part of the answer to that has to do with the fact that in most duels, someone isn't killed. The The point of the duel, given that the point of the duel is not to shed the blood of a person you hate, and, and given that vengeance is in bad form, you know, the point is to stand there and be shot at more than to shoot at someone else. More often than not, no one is killed. And in instances when, as you're suggesting, someone is killed in a duel, um, very often that person has a very hard time moving past that for that for that very reason, that they did not go and take part in this ritual in the hope of killing someone. And, you know, the the language after that kind of an unfortunate moment is, ooh, like that was unfortunate. You know, that's kind of them's the breaks if you're going to take part in a duel. But that was definitely not the goal. And there are all kinds of accounts of um, people who took part in duels and then lived a life of depression and melancholy ever after for all of the reasons that you're suggesting. So let's move here to the Congress because I think we've situated a bit in the culture. So you write that between 1830 and 1860, 
There are more than 70 violent incidents between congressmen in the House and Senate chambers or on nearby streets and dueling grounds. So in 30 years, you have records of more than 70 violent confrontations. Um, And do you think 70 is all that there were? No. (laughs) What an excellent question. No, I know for sure that it isn't. Um, And the fact is I found more than that. Um, But if I couldn't prove to my own satisfaction that it happened, I didn't include it in that number. Um, And the reason for that is a lot of these incidents, and this is part of why the story hadn't been told before, were essentially censored out of the period's equivalent of the congressional record. So for me to reconstruct these, sometimes it required finding it mentioned in a private letter, checking the record, the congressional record, to see if something happened that day that kind of conformed with what I read, seeing if I could find a newspaper reporter who reported on it or hinted at something in some way that would confirm it. So I absolutely know that that's not the total number. And after a certain arbitrary point, when I felt that I had so much evidence that I certainly didn't have any excuse to keep researching and had to force myself to sit down to write, I just stopped researching and began writing. But um, I know for a fact that if I were to spend several more years rummaging around in archival evidence, I, I would certainly find more. Do you think that this was a sharp uptick from the decades before that? Or was, or were we, since the dawn of the Republic, were there multiple violent confrontations in, uh, between congressmen every year? Well, I, I mean, certainly if you if you move the camera out a little, if you broaden the, the area of focus, you could say that America from day one has been violent. I mean, this has just been a violent nation. And throughout the period that this congressional violence is taking place, in some ways, Congress truly is being representative because there was rioting all over the nation. There was nativist violence. There there was all kinds of violence going on on a routine daily basis on the streets. But in Congress, there is an uptick that happens roughly in the 1830s, the early 1830s. And I think that's for two big reasons. One of them has to do with the rise of real organized party politics, and Andrew Jackson sweeps that in, and that's a whole new game when you really, in a sense, people are using military rhetoric for a reason. It's suddenly this kind of team battle that that raises the stakes and raises the emotions and raises the passions in a new kind of a way than what had been happening before. The other thing that changes in the 1830s is technology and the press. The press begins to really be able to slowly get more national, begins to spread more widely than it had in the past. And when I was researching the project, one of the things that keyed me in to the 1830s was that I suddenly saw when I was reading congressmen's letters, they appeared to be more obsessed with their press coverage in the 1830s than they had been before. They were worried about what they looked like. They were worried about what they sounded like. They were worried about how fast news might spread about what they were doing or saying. And so to some degree, it was actually the thing that we value, and rightly so, in our culture, which is, you know, accessibility and accountability of the people who govern us, um, that that very fact, and it over the time of the that the book covers, that becomes more and more extreme, that actually raised levels of violence. What's interesting to me, though, is that like in the congressional record, you you say that the press, I almost want to call it a de-escalatory role, that they, they don't talk about the violence directly. They'll talk about the aftermath of it, maybe in the aftermath of a duel or something. But they don't. You talk, for instance, about one incident where a congressman lunges at another one with his gun drawn. And you say it's the kind of thing the Boston Globe would describe as a lively debate. Yes. <laughs> 
I don't think of the hyper-partisan press of that era as being quite so proper. So what's going on there? Well, that changes over time. But initially, these congressmen don't want to look like thugs. They want to look brave and they want to look like they're defending the interests of their constituents, but they, they don't want to look like a bunch of thugs on the floor of Congress. And the press community, in the certainly in the 1830s, is very, very small in Washington. It's a handful of people. The congressmen know who they are. Many of them work for local newspapers that rely on government printing contracts for survival, and Congress does the granting of the contract. So it was a small press community that was very much in with congressmen, um, very much there to make their party look good and yet another reason not to play up the ugly aspects of the violence. So uh, the the newspapers in the early part of the book are really interested in in playing up bravado, but not necessarily the ugly, sharp edges of it. And so do you think that the – it's interesting here because do you think that the press is – trying to egg on this kind of partisanship that leads to violence? Or do you think that they see themselves as having a role of portraying Congress as more decorous than it is and and in a way de-escalating it? And, and the reason I ask is that I'm very interested as a member of the press about the ways in which we egg on politicians to be more confrontational or the ways in which we sand off the edges of confrontation so as to, to, to calm the country. And those are decisions made based on what we cover and how we cover it. And do we spend more time talking about the things where, where there's conflict or we do spend more time talking about the things where there's compromise? But what does the press see its own role as in this kind of period of time in American politics where tensions are rising? Well, one of the important things to know about the press in this period is that it's not remotely trying to be objective. So that's just not a goal for the press. It, that comes along later in the 19th century. And in this period, the newspapers are party papers. They belong to a party. And you sort of know that when you read a newspaper. And sometimes one paper will print something from the opposite side in their paper. But um, what, what they're trying to do more than anything else is make their side look good. And so they're going to do whatever it takes to make their side's politics look good, to make the, the, the quote unquote players on their team look good. That's going to be, and, and certainly was for a time, the main goal. But because of that very fact, because people really aren't striving for objectivity, as the debates in the period begin to really solidify around the issue of slavery, so basically as the nation really begins to expand and new states begin to join the union and every time a new state joins the union, the question comes up, rightly so, is this going to be a free state or is it going to be a slave state? As that becomes a primary issue and as that really begins to divide the nation in two, then the, the press becomes, in a sense, even less guarded, less, I don't want to say less objective, but more extreme, because in that sense, they are beginning to want to goad people, the public, into taking a side in what increasingly feels like an extremely high stakes contest that's going to shape the nature of the republic forever. So what role is violence playing between the members of Congress? Well, I mean, certainly part of what I found, generally speaking, is violence and, and equally important threats of violence. So intimidation plays a really important role in the world that I write about as well, because what Southerners typically are doing more than anyone else, and Southern-born Westerners as well, is they are using threats of violence and sometimes actual violence to intimidate opponents into silence or compliance. So initially, when most of the battles have to do with 
parties and they're between Whigs and Democrats. You have Southern Whigs and Southern Democrats using intimidation and violence to silence people on the other side. Um, over time, obviously, the slavery issue just takes over the national stage of politics. And then you have Southerners just trying to shut down anyone who tries to attack or threaten the institution of slavery. And so it's a it becomes a tool of debate. That's part of, I, I suppose, what I'm writing about in the book is the many ways in which Southerners deploy intimidation and violence as a tool of debate to control proceedings on the floor and tip the balance of power in their favor. And for a time, it really works. And can you give me some examples of this? How, do, how does this play out in, in practice? Um, okay, so there's uh, this is a minor example, and it involves um, John Quincy Adams, who's uh, was really fun to write about and is remarkable for any number of reasons. One of them being after his presidency, he goes and becomes a member of the House, which is not something we would imagine happening today. But because he's a former president and because he's the son of a founder, he's kind of invulnerable, and he he knows it in the House, so he taunts Southerners, and he knows that kind of out of bounds to slug John Quincy Adams. So he really takes this aggressive anti-slavery role in the House. So there's an occasion on which um, he wants to say something anti-slavery. There's actually a Southerner who's of the same party as Adams, who backs up uh, Adams's right to say what he wants to say, even though he doesn't agree with it. He's like, I know he's going to say something anti-slavery, but it, you know, it's his right. Let him say what he wants to say. And a Southerner struts over to the fellow who said Adams has a right to speak and makes it very clear that he's wearing a Bowie knife and says, you do that again on Adams' behalf or anyone's behalf when it comes to slavery, and I'm going to cut your throat from ear to ear. Now, in this case, the target was a bad target because this fellow actually had wrestled with someone trying to shoot him in the past. So he's not easily cowed. I'm sorry, this but is a Southerner talking to a Southerner? This, in this case, is a Southerner talking to a Southerner. But you can certainly see how many a person who had someone strut over to them with a Bowie knife and said, if you do that again, I'm going to kill you might not choose to stand up again, might not choose to say something. There, there's a wonderful diary by an Ohio congressman named Joshua Giddings, who's a very aggressive abolitionist congressman. And he writes in his diary when he first gets to Washington that he's stunned at the degree to which Northerners are afraid of what he calls these Southern bullies. They're, they're scared that they're going to get hurt, killed, maimed, humiliated, and they won't stand up to these Southerners. And, and Giddings himself does that. Giddings was a big guy. And he he actually, in one of his diary entries, he calls taunting Southerners, quote unquote, good sport. So he's kind of in their realm. But you really can get a very strong sense when you're reading particularly people's private letters and diary entries. People felt intimidated and it really did shape the dynamics of debate in Congress. Was the violence primarily about the slavery issue or did it extend to other issues that feel more prosaic in retrospect? Well, it, initially, it's more about party combat than it is about slavery. And very often it has to do with one party calling the other party corrupt or, or attacking the other party in some sort of a way, accusing it of crimes or of whatever the sort of negative thing, whatever the slur is that one side wants to throw at the other. Um, and so for the first part of the book, a lot of the 
fighting and the threats and the intimidation has to do with Whigs and Democrats each sort of smacking out at the other. But, um, you know, this is the time period when you do begin to get slavery really rising to the fore. And so by far, the vast majority of the kind of violence and intimidation that I write about really does have to do with slavery and discussion of slavery on the floor of Congress. And why isn't this stopped? So you you discuss how after a duel in which one congressman kills another and kills him, and, and I'm quoting you, for words spoken during debate, so a flaming violation of a fundamental privilege, no one was punished because by the congressional community standards, no rules have been broken. How <laughs> – I don't even know how to ask this question. How can it not be a break in the rules? How can it not be something that the – institution is trying to stamp out, particularly given, as you're saying, that the Southerners are not the majority in this period. They're they're using intimidation to extend a numerical advantage that they don't quite have. How is this not something that a rules-based organization uh, decides to, to deal with, given that it relates to killing people for congressional debate? Well, first of all, it wasn't necessarily, I'm going to kill you and nothing can stop me. So, uh, you know, I can't say it's so horrible and extreme that one side says, you know what, I'm going to kill you now. And everyone says, "Okay, let's watch. But it it is true. The rules, there there are any number of rules that would suggest that you can't hold someone responsible. You know, privilege of debate is that you have a right to say what you want on the floor and you can't be held personally responsible. But this shows you the, the degree to which the personal and the political are tangled up in all kinds of interesting ways in this period, because more often than not, if a debate began to – I was about to say go south, but that, that doesn't, doesn't work <laughs> for a lot of reasons. If, if a debate was becoming ugly, very often the two people engaged in the debate would say something like, I will not hide behind the rules of this institution. I discard my privilege of debate. So I am standing here as a representative of my people, my constituents and their rights, and I will defend their rights as a person, as a man, and I won't hide behind the fact that I'm a congressman. Um, Again, really counterintuitive, but the fact that that happened very frequently shows you the degree to which personal reputation is bound up with politics in such an interesting, weird, quirky way in this period. So there is this culture of violence in Congress, and there's this culture of not punishing it, and there is an emergent culture of party loyalty and party combat. And I guess the question it raises is – Something that you discuss in the book is the way in which the culture of combat was a Southern culture. And Northerners either shied away from it or sometimes felt weakened by it. The, there, there's some examples of Northerners feeling that they have to, to step up or, or, or they'll be seen as negative. I guess I'm curious why this doesn't become until much later an actual political point of pride for Northerners if they don't settle debates like this, right, that they're more civilized. Um, there, there seems to be a an ambiguity in the way that they understood this kind of violence is on the one hand, something they probably shouldn't be doing. But on the other hand, they weren't clear enough on that to actually take an organized political stance and then hold to that and then use rules of Congress um, to, to try to enforce it. Can, can, you, can you get at that a little bit? Yeah, that was one of the things that initially intrigued me about the project as a whole, you know, Congress as an institution 
brings people together from all over the union with all kinds of different customs of behavior and different ideas about the law and and manhood and anything else. And it puts them in two different rooms and then forces them to battle over you know, vital issues to the nation and their constituents. So one of the things that I was intrigued to see at the outset was, okay, what happens when you put Northerners and Southerners and Westerners and people of all different kinds in a room together and then force them to really deal with these really heated issues? And this very question is one of the intriguing things, which is what happens when you have Northerners who have a different sensibility about manhood and you should be able to settle things without man-to-man violence and um, there's a, a sort of dignified, more staid bearing that some Northerners had. Southerners were very much very comfortable with and actually proud of the tradition of dueling and honor combat. And they were very comfortable with man-to-man violence. What happens when you throw those people into one room and then force them to get into really contentious debates? And for a time, the answer to that question is that the Northerners kind of back down but are kind of embarrassed and ashamed of it. And over time, They become less likely to back down. So basically the bar of manhood and bad behavior gets risen, gets raised by Southerners. And over time, Northerners rise to that or lower themselves to that standard. You know, they they by the time you get to the late 1850s, you just have Northerners and Southerners engaging in physical combat. So one of the reasons I'm so interested in this book is that it does seem to me that the dynamics you're pointing out are present even today, that while we have much sharper strictures against violence, certainly in Congress, um, this kind of cycle of escalation, this way in which you end up in a lowest common denominator of behavior, because cycling into that lowest common denominator of behavior is a way of showing your commitment to the cause, it seems very present in the way that the two sides, I think in this case led by the Republicans, use congressional rules, um, use sort of rhetoric and, and, and Twitter, that This way in which um, showing that you are going – that you will not let the other side play dirtier or be more um, ruthlessly committed to their principles than you are seems like a a consistent dynamic that bad actors are able to take advantage of in almost every time period. Well, one of the interesting aspects of that – and you you touched on it when you mentioned Twitter or social media – One of the things that really changes that dynamic and that this was true in the 1850s and this is true now has to do with technology. And so nowadays, you know, we have social media and Twitter and, you know, personal iPhones and everything else change the way in which Americans communicate with each other and change the ways in which politicians communicate with the public and doing it in a way that kind of – it's almost free form, you know, it's sort of a, I want to say Wild West, but there's there's kind of a no rules, no holds barred. Um, There's a new technology and a new way of communicating kind of ethos out there. I mean, we're seeing it now. Who would have thought that they would utter on a daily basis, the president tweeted, you know, that's like just not a phrase that I would have imagined existed until, you know, two years ago. Um, But what social media does now, um, which is really hype up, the intensity and the passions and politicians can deploy it for that reason and the press, if they choose to, can use it for that reason. In other words, it's very easy to raise passions and get people on your side or against another side. That was happening in the 1850s through the telegraph. 
really, really similar dynamic where you have a new form of technology that's speeding up the ways in which Americans are communicating with each other and the ways in which political leaders can communicate with the public. And that really scrambles the dynamics of politics. That was one of the many striking things when I was working on the project towards the end of the project that really struck me was the ways in which some of the weirdness that we're experiencing now through social media, through Twitter and Facebook, really, really, there was a strong echo of that with the telegraph. What do you think the dynamics are of communication advances that lead to conflict escalation versus de-escalation? Because, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe that the introduction of, say, television into politics leads to a massive uptick in congressional violence. No, I don't think that's true. But but I can say, you know, not necessarily an uptick in violence, but an uptick in the awareness of violence, perhaps, because what I think of is the 1960s and the TV televising some of the rioting going on and the, the violence in the streets. And Americans suddenly understood that the civil rights movement was violent in ways they hadn't anticipated. That, that new technologies tell stories that I think in some cases Americans didn't realize were unfolding before. And sometimes those stories are violent. Yeah, and I guess there is a way in which certainly television increases the ability to posture. So it, it certainly increases yes. the ability to to escalate conflict. I mean, I, I do sometimes wonder with the march of, of these technologies how much we're just seeing that one of the strongest human attractions is to conflict. And every time you develop a more immediate, more universal way of displaying behavior, it will people will immediately be drawn to the the ways in which it can dramatize conflict. Right. There will always be those people. Who, who who want to capitalize on those kinds of moments for their own, you know, honor, reputation, importance, significance, whatever. You're right. Um, and, and will thus play up the conflict in one way or another. I think that's I think that's I mean, that's probably just partly human nature. But you're right. The, the complicating factor is when you're living at a time when politics is particularly polarized over an issue you know, so in, it was slavery in the 1850s. It was civil rights in the 1960s. Uh, it was how democratic the, the republic was going to be in the late 1790s. You could say right now it's over citizenship. When you have moments like that in which it's really clear that there's a fundamental issue about the nation that's being debated and it has high stakes and it feels as though it's two-sided and you're on or against one side or another, those are moments when these these forms of technology can really speed up communication and take it out of the hands of people who spin it and and change the nature of the political dialogue. I think that's such an interesting point. What do you what, what would you say separates issues or conflicts that people feel they can compromise on from from the ones they can't? Be, because I do think for instance about the way in which there's been an embrace of of direct action tactics um, under Trump, you know, the kind of what and then we had these big civility debates about whether or not somebody could be refused service in a restaurant or chanted at in a restaurant. And and behind those, I mean, the reason you don't see them as much on, say, issues of taxes, so issues of taxes, I think, really do have life or death and profound moral implications. Um, but the issue, the reason you don't see them that much is people kind of understand those as as issues that you can negotiate over, um, whereas there are some issues that are, you know, are you on the right side or the wrong side of history? And depending on which side you're on, then there's the issue of are you committed enough to being on the right side or wrong side of history to to really take a stand? And I'm curious how you see, you know, wh- why does why do some issues in American history get classified in one bucket and others in the other? 
Well, some of the issues that that get into the the sort of more extreme bucket that doesn't quite work, but you know what I'm trying to say. I do. <laughs> um, some of those um, are bigger than what do we think about budgeting or taxation or tariffs or you're right, things that feel that they can be debated. Some things I think really fundamentally touch on what is American. You know, what? who are Americans? Who counts in America? Who, you know, slavery was one of those issues. What is American? What kind of nation is this going to be? Civil rights is one of those issues. I think there are some issues, and even though they're inherently political, and even though the political process could be used, and ultimately, more often than not, is used to resolve those moments, there are some issues that have a morality to them and a kind of more fundamental nature to them that feel as though they have higher stakes and feel as though they're less compromisable because there is something in them, inherent in them, about morality that that really touches on what people fundamentally understand America to be. And I think it's hard, um, and understandably so in some ways, for people to compromise on something if it touches that that kind of base point, that that sort of fundamental, I don't know, third rail of, of what people assume about themselves and their country. It's interesting when you say that, and, and this is a hobby horse of mine, but but it makes me think of of identities and groups. It, it sounds like another, because so many of these issues feel to me like they they touch on morality. You know, when I look at even something like the healthcare debate we've had over the past couple of years and the ways in which that escalated or didn't escalate, you know, there are periods of time when healthcare politics, even when healthcare politics is really up for grabs, that it's treated as a normal issue. But then as it for the Tea Party became this issue of what kind of country are we? You know, are we going to be a free enterprise country? Um, it escalated. And I always think that the the place where things become irresolvable is when they become about very fundamental questions of our identities and who gets included and our groups and which group is winning or losing. And that if you kind of get up into that space, which can happen with an issue that at other times is seen as technocratic, you know, but happens much more often with issues of inclusion and, you know, who gets to, to, to be part of America, then there's no space for compromise because group competition is zero sum. Right. No, I think there's I think there's group competition is zero sum and there's a kind of what I was saying a moment ago too, a, a personal dimension to that which is also a group dimension, which is hard to – there's a real power to that. So, no, I think you're right that there are issues that at some points might seem resolvable or able to be compromised. But when they touch on that kind of fundamental what kind of country are we component, it just puts them in a different place and it becomes hard to debate them. One of the dynamics you've discussed here is that this is a period of time when the part when at least a version of our party politics is cohering into something a lot stronger. And, and you write the party membership was more than a label. It was a kind of pledge, a statement of loyalty to a political worldview that bound men together in reputation and purpose. How ideologically mixed or different were the parties at this point versus how much were they representing different regions, if that makes sense. I mean, how much in the way that today's parties have extremely different views on a huge range of issues, how much was that true then versus it being about a couple of issues, but really about, you know, we represent this group versus that group? Well, I, I would say a couple of things were happening at the same time in this period. And one of them really has to do more with form than, than ideology. And that has to do with the fact that Andrew Jackson and Martin Van Buren really 
came up with or perfected this way of engaging in group politics, party politics, you know, the, the Democratic Party, the Jacksonian Democrats, they called themselves the democracy. You know, it was like a thing that you belong to. I am part of the democracy. Um, there was a passion to it. And, a, and as you're suggesting, a kind of groupness to it. It was a something that you pledged yourself to. You were in a kind of brotherhood of battle. There was a an intensity to it and and even a violence to it and a passion to it um, that partly just had to do with the groupness of it. You know, you that was one of the things that struck me when I was first researching the book was the degree to which people fundamentally felt a shift in the grounds of politics as the Jacksonian Democratic movement caught on and people jumped onto that bandwagon and they were so swept away with the excitement and kind of team dynamic of it. It was something really different from what had come before. So initially, you have, you know, Jackson sort of spouting this, um, I'm here for the common man, although it's really the common white man message that was very general. There was no, you know, he wasn't initially at least coming up with very specific policy suggestions, but he was running as a kind of leader with a kind of style that really grabbed hold of a lot of people. The people who rose up and initially opposed him and his movement were, at least at the very outset, bound more by the fact that they hated him and what he represented than they were by any ideology. And eventually they do. The Whig Party becomes centered on its own ideology about national improvements and about, you know, big government sort of helping internal improvements in the nation and, and commercial um, growth and any number of other things that the Whig Party centers around. But that comes along after those people were already cohering together as the people who hate Andrew Jackson and all of the strange, seemingly demagoguery that he's pumping as a politician. So it's a little of both. It's a little bit of of how politics is being engaged in. And then it's also ultimately becomes ideological as well. It sounds completely alien and like it has no resonance to our current politics at all. <laughs> Shocking, isn't it? <laughs> people, I mean, people often use Andrew Jackson as a kind of metaphor for, for Donald Trump. I believe if I'm not wrong about this, I think Donald Trump's um, Donald Trump uses, he uses yeah. it himself. And, and so you write at one point of Jackson that Quote, his passions got the better of him time and again. And in this violent and passionate age, many Americans loved him the better for it. Is there a way in which Jackson's appeal and the way he was often rewarded for flying off the handle and being willing to take the fight to his enemies in a way that I think would have seemed to others as unpresidential um, helps us understand something about Donald Trump's appeal in politics? Well, for sure, there's there are longstanding traditions in American ideas about leadership. So, for example, back to the very beginning of the Republic, Americans liked their leaders to have military experience or to be military men or people who could fight, right? George Washington was that kind of guy. John Adams wasn't and people wondered about it. Thomas Jefferson wasn't and people criticized him about it. So th there's that kind of a theme that that weaves its way through leadership. And there's also the fact that in a, in a you know, small R Republican mode of politics in a democratic republic, rhetoric and, and, and you know, what we, I suppose, now could call populism, but the, the sort of Things that you do to rouse people's emotions and, and to get them going on your team, there's a longstanding tradition of that in the United States because our government was more grounded on public opinion than a lot of other 
governments at the time, monarchies, would have been. So that, too, has a really long-standing root in American politics, as does distrust of elites and intellectuals. I mean, Adams, uh, John Quincy Adams and Andrew Jackson, when they are competing for the presidency, that campaign boils down to who do you want to vote for, the man who writes or the man who fights? And it's the man who fights who wins. Something that I wonder about in, in this period you're discussing is how much the polarization is reflecting what is happening in the country and how much it is driving what is happening in the country. It, it seems to me that there are periods in American politics when national politicians are taking a fracture that exists out in the country and trying to calm it. Um, I would say for better and for worse, this was happening in the mid-20th century. And there are periods where they're taking fracture or even not that much fracture and amplifying it. In some ways, I would actually say that's happening now, but 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 maybe here too. And I'm curious about, for you, the conditions under which political leaders um, are able to turn up the temperature or turn down the temperature or whether you sort of you view it more structurally that more the temperature turning up politicians emerge in periods when the temperature is up and, and, and down when it is down? Well, I think – I don't think there's any one dynamic in, in which that works. I think that varies in different ways. And so I think sometimes it is politicians driving that and I think sometimes – it's constituents and the public driving it. And sometimes, you know, in parts of the book that I write about, you can see those things banging up against each other. So, for example, you can see uh, at one point in the 1850s, there's a northern congressman who apparently went home and gave this very aggressive, belligerent Southerners or barbarians, those slaveholders, you know, they're barbarians kind of a speech back home in Massachusetts. And he comes back to Washington and he's engaged in a debate about something and a Southerner stands up and essentially says, you know, I have a newspaper in my hand repeating what you said back home. This is partly because of the telegraph. So, so I know what you called us. I know what you called me. Do you really think you can come back here to Washington and take my hand and shake it and work with me on a committee having just called me a barbarian? Do you really think my constituents will want me to do that? Do you really think that's possible? And that's a really interesting moment, right? Because you can certainly see his point. And he's very much, he's saying that not just for other congressmen, but he's saying that partly because he knows his constituents are watching and he is playing to them and also responding to them. But both of those things go on at the same time, I think, then and probably to some degree forever after. That it's it's kind of a in the book I call it a cycle of outrage that, you know, politicians rant to the public, the public rants back at politicians, politicians rant back to the public, and then the press kind of is the mediator in between all of them. Um, I think on some of these moments when you really are dealing with these issues that that touch on what it fundamentally means to be American, that kind of dynamic goes in motion and you can see how, and we're kind of experiencing how it's hard to slow it down or silence it once it gets going. I almost don't know how to ask this question because it just leaves me so aghast. You have these Southerners in this period who are implementing and defending and participating in one of the most barbaric and violent and murderous institutions ever to exist in human history. And they go to Congress, and if they get called corrupt or a liar, or in this case, barbaric, 
you know, if this institution gets attacked, they respond by saying you've besmirched my honor and to show how my, my civ- how civilized I am, um, I'm going to beat the shit out of you or I'm going to, you know, uh, have a duel with you. And I just can, can you I just find the psychology very um, scary, actually. Uh, the, the the way in which his cognitive dissonance was able to exist in the minds and hearts of, of you know, perfectly intelligent men, um, and for that matter, I guess women, although not in Congress. Can you talk a bit about that? Is there any attempt to reckon in the Southern mindset here with what they are being called, given what they are actually doing? Well, I think, I mean, you're absolutely right, but I think the fact that this institution that's grounded on violence and inhumanity is being championed by these people who are portraying themselves as, you know, the ultimate sort of civilized uh, superior beings shows you the degree to which these people truly did not see enslaved people as people. I mean, fundamentally, you know, they when they defended slavery, they, you know, defended themselves as treating, you know, their quote unquote people well, that they gave them a good life, that, you know, they're, they're all of the tried and true, you know, sort of tropes and, and cliches that, that Southerners said about how they believed that what they were doing was the right thing to do. And it's it's almost impossible to put yourself in a mindset where that actually could make sense. It made sense to them to the degree that, you know, they went to war over it. It's it's just it's a you're right. It's a very hard thing to talk about civility and civilization and honor among slaveholders. I, I want to be very careful in how I talk about this next part, but but I do think it's important. So one reason I bring this up and one reason I don't think it's that hard to put myself in that mindset is that I think there are a lot of parts of American politics where people are using either a culture of intimidation or a culture of civility to enforce great or to protect great harm from being questioned. And I want to be very clear here. I'm not about to analogize the things I'm going to talk about to slavery. Um, I'm going to analogize a kind of mental protective device people use um, to, to the one they were using in that period. And I think here about climate change, which people are exacting a toll on future generations that if we if the science we have is correct and it could certainly be even worse than we believe is uh, is something that will be seen as a true moral outrage of our era. I, I'm, I'm somebody who cares a lot about animal rights and suffering and I think that the way we do factory farming and you know, People are willing to hear criticism of that in a very narrow bound. But beyond that, there's something in between civility and intimidation that kicks in if you question it too much or much more if you try to engage in any direct action around it, right? Like I think about the way um, you know, direct action on climate change is uh, dismissed or PETA is laughed at. And there's something in the ways in which um, civility is enforced and certain boundaries of speech are enforced, sometimes by violence, right, in, in this case, and, and and sometimes by law, right? You have things like ag-gag rules to keep people from looking into what's happening in factory farms. Um, and then sometimes just by, you know, the, this idea that you are being uncivil, that you are breaking the rules of polite discourse if you challenge people too much or if you take their behavior and try to use their behavior to uh, lay down a moral judgment on, on the kind of people they are. It seems very eternal that I, I worry – 
we believe too much that the way people were acting then is not the way – is working off of a different psychology than the one we have now when these psychological defense mechanisms and social defense mechanisms might be more constant than we want to give them credit for. Yeah. Well, I think that's true and I think that um, – and I also want to be careful in the way I talk about this. But I think that civility, the idea of civility – can be used as a censoring device, right? So, you know, and and when I say that, I'm not preaching for a total lack of civility or asking for violence, but is it civil to refuse to sit in the back of a bus? Is Is it civil to block a street in protest of something? You know, was Rosa Parks being civil? I don't think so. And I think that sometimes you have to protest, right? I don't. You don't have to be violent, but you have to protest. So I think one of the things I think about a lot right now is our idea of civility and how we talk about civility and, and kind of along the lines of what you're suggesting, how it's being used um, and, and the meanings that it's being given that aren't necessarily inherent to it. If that makes any yes, sense. Yes, to keep stepping on uh, across the field of landmines here. Something yeah, I know. <laughs> something you just said is interesting because you, I think you said a bit reflexively. You have to protest, but you don't have to be violent about it. And something I think you're seeing in this era that you're writing about is some, is what the South says effectively is if you want to do anything about this, you're going to have to be violent about it. I mean, go way before the Civil War. If you want to even talk about slavery in Congress, you're going to have to be violent about it. And people place a very high weight and a high value on social order. And so, I mean, you write about in the book uh, in Congress this era of gag rules where in an effort to try to keep the peace in Congress, they just decide, well, we're not going to talk about this anymore. And again, the threat of violence and, and disorder and disunion is in some ways lurking behind that. And so, you know, I, I think a bit about the way in which – it is often the people who are committing the most grievous forms of social violence who end up leveraging everybody else's distaste for violence or fear of violence and disorder to protect the the harms that they're inflicting. And and I don't know what to say about it. I mean, to, to maybe use a, a – because I'm not comfortable with violence myself, but, but to maybe use a, a slightly less violent example, I sometimes think about the possibility of smaller countries that are more threatened by climate change due to both their geography and topography and their lack of wealth just beginning to blast sulfates into the air, into the atmosphere to change the climate unilaterally because, well, they're the ones who are going to lose from it, so why not? And like that would be kind of a violent act to, to unilaterally change the atmosphere. On the other end, it's a very violent act for countries like ours to emit so many emissions that we're going to destroy the future of these island nations or hundreds of million, or, or send hundreds of millions of people into being Bangladeshi refugees. And I'm not asking you to comment on, on climate change and geoengineering, but, but I do think that issue of the most violent using everybody else's fear of violence to protect their ability to commit continuing violence is right. one worth exploring a little bit. Right. No, and you're right. And there's a real power to that. I mean, that's, you know, one of the fundamentally fascinating things about my research process and about writing this book was that very thing, was looking at the ways in which Southerners and Congress manipulated that dynamic 
they didn't necessarily want to be violent, but they made it very clear that they were very willing to be violent if they felt that they were being attacked in an unfair way. And they also made it very clear that they assumed that their constituents were happy with them for doing that, which it would appear that they were. You know, some of my most well, my most violent or consistently violent congressmen uh, from Virginia, this is an age in which, um, you know, most people served one term in Congress, maybe two, and then vanished. And the, the most violent fellow, the, the most routinely violent fellow is reelected six times. And says at one point when he's reprimanded, shame on you. How can you behave like this? You're you're violating this institution. You're misbehaving. You're causing all kinds of fights. You should be thrown out of this place. And he responds by saying, yeah, OK, go ahead. Try. Because I'm going to be immediately reelected and put right back here because my constituents put me here to engage in that kind of behavior on their behalf. And that's what I do. That's why I'm here. And I'm going to keep doing it. Well, what do you do <laughs> in that situation, right? How do you respond to that when someone says, yeah, I am going to deploy violence to get what I want and it works and my constituents like it very much? What do you do? You know, I mean, the book shows one unfortunate answer to that question, which is, you know, what do you do in that situation? Well, ultimately, maybe you become violent too. Yeah. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Because there is a very interesting transformation among the anti-slavery coalition from you know being a little cowed by this to with the particularly with the rise of the republicans developing this this faction that says nope we're going to we're we're going to play by your rules if if violence is the only way to uh, approach this and violence it will be. I mean, your book follows uh, French, who is, you know, this clerk of the house and, and has these remarkable diaries. And he himself has a very interesting personal evolution from seeming to be angry at those questioning slavery because it threatens disunion to finding himself on their side. And his evolution seems a little bit related to his own personal incentives. But but maybe you could track that a bit because it it, it seemed an interesting example of how these things change or don't. Oh, absolutely. And and Benjamin Brown French, um, I, I still sing hosannas to Benjamin Brown French because he um, helped me figure out how to tell the story, you know, which is a story of, you know, 70 fights and hundreds of fighters and, you know, a 30-year period. And it, 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 how do you tell that story? That really, it took me years to figure out how to tell the story. And French, who is, as you say, a, a clerk in the house, not, he's the clerk briefly, but more often than not, he's just a clerk, um, comes to Congress uh, in 1833 as a clerk, is a Democrat, is, is swept in with this sort of passionate love of Andrew Jackson and all that he represents. So he's part of that wave of people who are being affected by this new way of doing politics. And as you suggest, he comes in at the time he would have been called a doe-faced Democrat, meaning a northerner willing to do anything to appease southerners on the issue of slavery for the sake of his party and for the sake of the union. So he comes into Washington and into Congress as that guy, willing to do anything to appease Southerners, worried about the Union, liked by everybody, liked by Northerners and Southerners and Whigs and Democrats. He's kind of a hail fellow, well-met kind of guy. And over the course of the book, you see him gradually transform because little by little, he begins to see Southern behavior in Congress and begins to see the ways it's affecting him personally and then the North more broadly. Um, when I started thinking about using him for the book and I knew he entered as this fellow who would do anything to appease Southerners, you know, I discovered that um, 
towards the end of the period that I write about in the book, he goes out to buy a gun in case he needs to shoot some Southerners. And I thought to myself early on in the project, if I can take people on the trajectory with him through the book so that they understand how this person who came in as this jovial, well-liked guy, desperate to appease Southerners, how does that guy within 30 years go out to buy a gun to shoot Southerners? How does that make sense to him? How did he undergo that kind of transformation to turn on other Americans? Well, that's really getting at the coming of the Civil War, but also on that kind of polarization in a different kind of ground level way. And and that's really what French enabled me to do, which ties right back into the larger point you're making here, which is, how does that happen? How does the violence escalate? How do people who seemingly did not want to be violent, how do they turn that corner and, and sort of change the behavior that they have and, and thus change the whole fundamental dynamic of American politics? But what's striking to me about French and where I think there might be a slightly hard lesson in it, is that as I read the story you tell of him, it's not the abstract moral principle that changes, but it is his, it is a degree to which a conflict over that principle begins to affect him personally. So he loses his job at some point and then is not really able to get it back, at least in the way he had it, um, because he's getting, you know, kind of kicked aside in this factional warfare between Northerners and Southerners, and he's not really quite of the right geography to, to, to fit the two parties. And it, it kind of keeps going on like this. And, and I wonder how much that itself is a useful metaphor that we clearly fought a civil war over slavery, but in order to instantiate, it had to affect people's interests more directly through secession and and and, and other things. That there is that the way people end up being moved is that they find themselves to be losers, or at least they're grouped to be losers, and it is that fear of loss that will connect them to to that principle in the way that they're willing to fight for it. Whereas it's you know not never, but it is only occasionally the principle itself that people will transform so fundamentally over. Oh, absolutely. And that that very fact is something that um, John Quincy Adams used brilliantly when he's in Congress. He knew that not enough Northerners were upset about the issue of slavery to make it a, a fundamental issue for them, a, a, a thing to really protest against. But he also knew that if Northerners felt that their rights of representation and free speech on the floor were being betrayed or some in some way or limited – Northerners would get very upset about their own rights being taken away far more than they would about the rights of someone else being taken away because of the institution of slavery. So he advanced the cause of anti-slavery by playing up the fact that by being gagged and by not being allowed to discuss slavery on the floor, Northerners, their Northern representatives were being silenced and Northerners had fewer rights on the floor than Southerners. So he very much did just what you're saying. He said, hey, Northerners, your rights and your interests are being stifled. You're being treated as less than here in Congress, and that matters. And that got people riled up. And what ultimately brings down the gag rule is that fact, is the fact that Northerners get very upset that they feel that their fundamental rights of representation are being denied. So yeah, I do think sometimes we do rise as Americans to a level when principles and morality matters. And sometimes it really does boil down to interest and power. And the the end struggle might look the same, but obviously the internal dynamics are very different. The, the great question of your book uh, the, that I think is more general than the time period it's in is around, to me, the morality of escalation versus de-escalation. 
there's one way to read the book as a kind of tragedy in which the stakes keep escalating. And then, of course, eventually the, the country ends up in a civil war. Another way to read the book is as an indictment of the cowardice of those who would not raise the stakes, who are cowed into being complicit in a way in a great evil because they were afraid of the conflict and dissension and even disunion that would emerge out of that kind of confrontation. And without asking you to abstractly comment on uh, on anything in the present day, I'm just curious how you think about that lesson of the book for yourself. How do you how do you think about when it is moral to escalate even at the possibility of great costs versus you want to be trying to calm and and, and retain civility or, or even if it's not civility, decorum in an institution that is meant to uh, retain that? To be quite honest, I struggle with that to some degree. This was a really difficult time to finish this book. Um, it, you know, I started it 17 years ago. 17 years ago, the United States was in a very different place and this felt far more removed. Um, and in the last, you know, three years or so, um, it suddenly doesn't feel removed at all in some ways. You know, it's it's a book about extreme polarization and uh, conspiracy theories and new technologies altering the dynamics of politics. And I could I could tick off, you know, national parties disintegrating, distrust in national institutions. Like, you know, there's almost a checklist. It's it's very similar. And the question of how we should be coping with the situation or dealing with it or how I am coping with it or dealing with it, I guess has been very front and center in my mind because in some ways along the way, I felt that as I was wrestling with ideas in the book, I, without even thinking about it, was sort of wrestling with similar ideas in the present. And by that, I mean an example of that. I was writing, I remember the part of the book that talks about Northerners becoming more violent, Northern constituents wanting their congressmen to fight, urging them to fight. I even talk in the book about an instance in which constituents give their congressmen a gun to take to Washington with him. And I was trying to put myself in their minds and understand how you get to that point that you're arming your congressman to fight for your rights. As I was sitting at my desk writing about that, I had some cable TV news program on. I don't remember what it was. Um, and I remember reflexively, and, and I was talking about I, some Democrat, I don't even remember which one, but I remember saying out loud to to no one but me in the room, oh, for God's sake, fight. And and I, I had to step away from my computer, you know, because I was like, okay, well then. <laughs> I, there's the answer to my question, right? I was sitting there in the here and now thinking to myself, you have to act, like you have to do something. This is an extreme moment. You're going to have to fight for what's right. And I want you to fight for what's right. And as that came out of my mouth, it, it it put me smack in the middle of 1858 in a way that I hadn't expected to be. So I wrestle with that. I think about that. I, you know, I, I do, as an American and as a historian, feel that, that this sort of takes us back to where we began our conversation. But we're in a, a fraught moment in which some very bad things could happen. Um, and I don't know if they will, but they could. And there are some aspects about our current political situation which are unprecedented, and some of them are very deeply rooted in our past, but some of them are different. Um, and I don't know what will become of them. As a historian, you know, my historian brain is on high alert 
you know, my my uh, sort of what I call my Joanne Freeman brain, you know, the my my normal American brain um, is also on high alert. Um, and the lessons of the past and the lessons, you know, the the story that I tell in my book shows a process of escalation that is alarming to connect with what we're seeing now. Now, I, you know, have spoken all over the country about this book. I've said time and again that when I say that there are echoes of of the past I write about in the present, I'm not saying we are unquestionably on the road to civil war, right? I don't want people to draw that kind of a direct line. On the other hand, I do want them to recognize that sometimes escalation leads to extreme ugliness and we should be aware of that and responsive to that and and doing what we can do to resolve this situation in a way that avoids that. It's a really kind of strangely um I want to say schizophrenic time. It's I, I'm a very divided mind, I find, these days. Um, and I know a lot of other political historians feel the same way, that um, we see similarities in the past. Um, we're unsure what to make, what to make of the similarities. Um, and we can't predict the future. Um, and yet the past is offering all kinds of hints about what we should be thinking about. It's a very fraught, complicated time to be a political historian. Um, and as you can imagine, it was a very fraught, complicated time to come out with a book uh, of the sort that I just came out with. I always think the most uh, honest place to end these podcasts is actually in notes of ambiguity. So I think that's a good, I think that's a good one. So let me ask you the, the final question we always uh, request, which is what are three books you've read that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, one of them is going to be um, an obvious contender. Uh, and that is um, there is a an extremely abridged version of Benjamin Brown French's diary, one volume. He he wrote this, you know, multi, multi, multi volume diary, but there's a one volume version of it called Witness to the Young Republic. And it, it's a wonderful thing because it truly is just his diary edited and, and abridged so that it's more readable than it might otherwise be. But it's the diary of this person who truly is a witness to the Republic in this fraught moment. And it's it's really fascinating, not just because of what it shows you about politics, but because of what it shows you about America and about someone who was from this little tiny town in New Hampshire, uh, had never left it, really, had been to Boston, I think, a few times, uh, learning by going to Washington kind of what the nation is and what it was becoming. So I'm totally biased, of course, but I think it's a fascinating read. And for people who want to get a kind of eyewitness account of the United States in this time period, um, it's a great way to start. Um, it's edited by um, Donald Cole. So that's that's one thing that I would recommend that certainly is the real basis of the whole book that I just wrote. Um, along the same lines, um, another book that I would recommend is titled First Blows of the Civil War by um, James Shepard Pike. Um, again, puts you smack in the middle of that time period. Pike was a reporter um, at, of the time, and he was a real kind of flame-throwing reporter who, uh, and an abolitionist who had all kinds of extreme things that he said in his newspaper, some of them so extreme that when he later compiled them together, as he does in this volume, to offer to the public as a, as a group, he even censored himself a bit because he went out on such a limb when he was in the newspaper. But um, he really, you can sort of, through the eyes of a press man, through the eyes of this reporter, you can watch the 
the, the sort of drumbeat of change over time uh, and see one member of the media's attempt to do what we were talking about before, and that is really stir the public into understanding the extremity of the situation and the seriousness of the problem of slavery and to get them emotionally riled up. Uh, and he incorporates all kinds of uh, personal letters and things in there, too. So again, I'm totally biased because I'm a historian. Um, but I think that that's a, that also is a, was a fascinating read and included all kinds of things in it that um, even as a historian surprised me to read because they were so extreme. Um, so that would be um, another related book that I'd recommend. And I guess the third one, um, it's an old book, and in some ways it's very outdated, but um, I still think it's wonderful in some ways. Um, it's a book called The Impending Crisis by David Potter. Um, it was written in the 70s, and it's a story about the coming of the Civil War. And of course, we have a zillion books on the coming of the Civil War, and this is from the 70s, so there have been so many wonderful forms of scholarship and 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 things that people have done since then, focusing on um, how enslaved people themselves dealt with the crisis, focusing on um, abolitionism in a variety of different ways, black and white abolitionism. I mean, any number of things have been dealt with in lots of ways since this book was written. But what it actually does is, in a, a really human kind of ground level way, show the momentum and and ethos and mood of building crisis that that led to the civil war so as a narrative it's really really effective it's a good read and a, a kind of classic work of civil war history that that bears reading again joanne freeman thank you very much thanks for having me thank you to joanne freeman for being here to nina Moschella for engineering to jeff geld for producing the ezra Klein show is a vox media podcast production 